Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Debbie Gold, executive chef of Found Kitchen and Social House, The Barn, and Stolp Island Social, all under ADM management in the Chicago area. We talk about me at 23-year-old punk kid working at 40 Sardines under Chef Debbie Gold. We talk about the importance of family meal, and we talk about chicken noodle soup. Thanks, as always, for listening. Enjoy. I grew up in the northern suburbs of Chicago, and, you know, uh, in my house, food was uh, real simple. Um, you know, I grew up, and here I'll age myself, you know, I'm was born in the mid-60s, so, you know, 60s, 70s. My mom was a housewife, ate dinner every night. We had, you know, protein, veg, starch, and a salad. Uh, and, you know, nobody was really into necessarily the culinary scene. So uh, it was, I don't know why I, well, you know what? I'll tell you what it was. When I was a kid, I liked to make, like, cookies and cake, but I never liked to use the box. So I always started looking at recipes to make them from scratch. And that's kind of how I started getting into my love of cooking. Nobody really cooked, you know, was into the culinary scene. And we ate, again, pretty simply. So uh, why, I mean, even like as my career went on, my parents were like, you know, how did you learn to like this stuff? And how did you learn to cook all of this kind of stuff? And it was just not really my background food like I do now. Well, in the but, 60s uh, and 70s aren't renowned for innovations in culinary, right? You're just coming out of TV dinner phase was so heavy in the, in the 50s. And when innovation around food was all about making it as simple as possible, making yeah, all these, frozen you know, frozen, veggies, yeah. canned yeah, food. Yeah, we the, had all of that. Lots of, lots of little weird gadgets. If you ever like research the history of the evolution of the American kitchen, the actual function of the kitchen all the weird gadgets and stuff it was all about like almost like robot kitchens so i i think that's very interesting so where were you looking for these recipes well really i started out you know because there was no internet back then um uh, like food and wine and bon appetit magazine i would just start looking through magazines and finding stuff that interests me um and I would find these different recipes and I'd go to my mom, hey, this looks cool. Can I make this? And she'd be like, yeah, sure. And she'd get whatever I wanted. And then it was great because I get to play with whatever I wanted to make. And she was always like, I'll get the dishes. So <laughs> that made it easier. That's um, perfect. You're like, I want to be in charge yeah, of the great. kitchen. So somebody else has to do my dishes. And this makes a lot of sense yeah. to me that you're a self-starter. That's so obvious. Anybody who's met you for 35 seconds and the fact that you're like, I don't see the thing that I want. So I'm just going to go out and find it and make it. That clearly was you as a kid. And that continues to be your way across the kitchen. You, you, you see that correlation from such an early age? 
wow, nobody's ever said that. That's pretty wild. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I just something sparks my interest. And, and, you know, now I say I just like geek out about things and I, I just kind of find what I'm looking for. And if I don't like the recipe that I see, I just play with it. You know, and that kind of goes with, you know, you hear a lot of chefs that do savory, that they're not good at pastry and they're not good at baking you know, a little pat myself on the back, I guess, but it's, it's kind of like, it's just another recipe. And I know baking and pastry is a little bit more exacting, but that's the anal part of me <laughs> that a lot of chefs have anyway. So it's because a I've lot of chefs are gunslingers, the- right? There's like, let me just get in there and make it happen. And sometimes you have to be much more measured, both yeah, in your but approach. I do that with pastry too. Oh, I like it. Tell me about that. Really? Well, you know, as you just look at the recipes and yeah, I actually had a job for small, actually right before I moved to Kansas City where I did R&D for a company doing product for or pastry products for when Starbucks first was came to Chicago and was like growing and they were trying to do, you know, they had to come up with a certain cookie and they wanted to do like a chocolate dip pretzel and they came in one day with a cookie and said, this is the cookie we want to make. And that's all I had to go on. So then it was like, okay, well, so I made like four or five different types of cookies and said, which one do you like? And they picked one. And then I'd have to take that recipe and like increase it so they can distribute it to however many Starbucks stores. So you learn how, you know, what eggs do, what white, you know, like uh, white sugar, brown sugar, dark brown sugar, all that different things do to the cookie. And so now I just take that and go, oh, I don't like this brownie. I want it to be this. I think I'll change this part of it. So it's kind of the same thing where you have to be maybe be a little bit more exacting with pastries than you do that making, um, you know, the best macaroni and cheese where you can just go, oh, it needs more cheese, needs more. I want to put some nutmeg in it or something. It's kind of the same thing with pastries. It's a lot of sense in the way that uh, you're going to like look at the box and then figure out how to do something outside the box. I think that's, I think that's a really good approach. I'm interested in that because some people are completely outside the box thinker and never look at the box, which can lead to great things or fucking tragic disasters. And I think it's interesting to look at the box and then go, cool. Now I get how the box is made. I see how the sausage is made. Now I'm going to just make my own box. So I really, really appreciate that approach. You had that in you. That was clear from a, from a young age. You get in the industry at Poppin' Fresh Pies yeah. at the age of 17. Talk about that time. I'm just always well, so intrigued by how we get ourselves <laughs> into the industry. Yeah, so I was actually a server there. And one, it shows why I'm not good in the front of the house. Poppin' Fresh Pies was a chain where, you know, their thing were pies. Um, and I had to wear, you know, those nylon zip up front server uniforms that you see in all the old sitcoms and movies about the seventies. I had to wear one of those with the white shoes and I was a server and sold pie. And if you got hungry, your finger slipped into the pie and you ate a piece of pie. Oops, can't serve that one. I remember, you know, having I, one story that always sticks out in my mind is somebody ordered or I went to the table and they wanted like a club sandwich. They said, what's a club sandwich? And I kind of laughed and I went, what's a club sandwich? And I looked at them and they were totally serious. And I was like, oh, well, you know, it's got the three pieces of toast and the 
lettuce and the turkey and the whole thing. I don't know. It was just odd. Um, I had one time where they had like a, a syrup sweetener for the coffee and they Somebody's like, how do you work this thing? And I was like, oh, my God, pick up the bottle. I mean, I literally said, you pick up the bottle, you read the label, then you push the top and you pour. I put it down and I walked away and I probably got a shitty tip from that person. But I was like, I'm not good at the front of the house. But what I did learn when I was there is the back of the house. I didn't get to work in the kitchen, but I got to watch guys, the cook working. And and I say guys because back then it was just all men back there. And I thought, wow, that was fun. And it also felt like I knew I could do it just by watching what they were doing. I knew I could do it. And were you hooked then as far as like being in the industry? You saw that and and that took you on trajectory. And then you said, I'm going to school. And you did hospitality program at Illinois. Then you went on to France to cook theirs. But you knew at front of house, club sandwich, debacle and all, you were You were still like, I'm in and watching those cooks. You said, that's what I'm meant to do. And you were on that path. There was never a doubt in your mind. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I always knew. Well, I always cooked. So, and then when I watched them in the kitchen, I was like, wow. Yep. And then that was it. And I actually thought about going to like one of the culinary schools because back then there was, there weren't a lot of them and a lot of people didn't go to culinary schools. But I had my degree from uh, U of I, and they wouldn't, you know, a lot of the administrative or business writing, whatever those kind of classes that they teach at the CIA, they wouldn't let me, like, test out of or pass out of. And I said, oh, well, I'm not going to pay for school twice and learn the same thing. Um, I went and applied for a job as a cook, and I basically got kind of laughed at because I'm short-statured. I dressed up, I put makeup on, I did my hair. The guy said, oh, you know, you're going to break a nail possibly in the kitchen, and that's when I said to myself, ooh. Back then, it was also all about going to France. France was it. So I figured out how to get to France, and that's what I did. bet that motivated you, that little bit of a slight of, breaking your nail uh, because you're tough as nails knowing you. So I mean, that was a <laughs> motivator and a half. You're like, I'm going to show you. Yeah, I'm sure that sparked like, a fire. Know, How could you say that? I actually got a job as an expediter in the kitchen. So again, get watching all the guys cooking, going, I know I can do this. And then, yeah, I figured, you know, how am somebody going to take me seriously? And I said, uh, I need to figure out how to get friends. So that's what I did. I figured out how to get to France, which was also interesting because it was still all men. And even the stages that you had mostly, um, I think it was like Japanese people doing stages in France. There were some Americans, no women. They all thought I was this cute little girl from Chicago. And I just kind of wanted to stand there. And I was like, nope, I want a knife. Give me a knife. Show me what to do. To the point where, you know, the cook would go you're working too fast slow down the chef will give us more to do if you keep that up (laughs) like oh but i'm having fun early on saw success in your career and then i want to take everybody uh forward in time restaurant 40 sardines in kansas city coming off winning a a james beard best chef midwest at american restaurant kansas city then a james beard nod for best new restaurant at 40 sardines i mean the the momentum is there the accolades are there and then in in 2006 into seven two punk 23 year old kids myself (laughs) 
and Jason Stanhope. So hysterical. Anybody listening needs to go back and listen to Jason Stanhope's episode. Amazing conversation with him. I want to embarrass you a little bit, and I want to give you some props for sure, because that was a very formative time for me personally. Jason and I talked about it for both of us. It was actually Tim Doolittle, a chef of mine, who was the first like true chef that I worked for in Kansas City. Moving on from that place, he connected us, got the job there. And so there's three things that I remember that I want to tell people about. First is that Poisson station, that fish station, still to this day, the heaviest station I've ever worked in the tiniest kitchen. I want to paint a picture for people. It was three pan pickups for every single fish. We're, 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 we're basting fish. It's butter mounted pan sauces, uh, plus garnish pickups with fiend herbs and stuff. So you're spending 20 minutes just chopping chives and chervil and parsley to garnish dishes. I'm six, two, the (laughs) oven on the station, when you open it, there's about nine, 10 inches of clearance between the end of the door of the oven to the cutting board on the station. So you couldn't even stand in front of the oven. You had to like reach around <laughs> in it. Unbelievable. You're, p- <laughs> you're picking up 12 dishes with three pans. You're like, cool, I got 36 pans. It was absolutely amazing. And I remember also being so driven that you start on the, on the pantry station and within two months I was on that fish station because I saw it right away. I was like, that's the hardest station. That's yeah, that going to be my yeah, station. Right. And I was like, I'm going to be over there. It was the only station that you would come back and sometimes – just because of a 12, uh, 12 yeah, plate pickup, you would come, yeah. come back and help that station. Every other station, you were on your own because you better be able to handle that. But Fish, it was like, yeah, you're, and I remember it and I'll never forget it. And anytime somebody's like, this station's hard, chef, I was like, listen here, let me tell you about the fish station at 40 Sardines. So I just absolutely <laughs> loved that station, wanted everyone to hear about that station. And I am not even joking. There was 12 order pickups and maybe a couple were two pan pickups, but most of them were three pan pickups, Yeah, you know? And so heavy station, loved it. Really, really amazing. So one thing I remembered, the other thing that was really great about there was getting introduced to other chefs. You had a back room with a tiny little kitchen back there where uh, sometimes you did a couple cooking classes, demos that I remember. but, But the thing that I remember most was, there was quite a few chefs, especially that came around on book tours. So I remember doing uh, dinners with John T. Edge when he's doing the, the Southern food uh, book tour. Yeah. I remember Michelle Richard. I think it was Happy yeah. Chef maybe came through yeah, doing yeah, dinner there. Yeah, book came out, yeah. Yep. And then I also remember the, the women of James Beard, I think is how it was branded. And so it was, it yeah. was Susan Goen. It was Ann Quatrano. It was Susan Lynch, right? Yeah, uh, Barbara Lynch. Yeah, Barbara Lynch. Excuse me, apologies, Barbara Lynch. Amazing chef from Boston, and uh, so I really remember that. And I was always the one. I think actually, I think at maybe all three of those, Jason and I helped out with those because we were just like, "Yep, I'll come into my day off and cook at those." So that was really, really great to see. Be a part of that atmosphere was was really, really great. And then the third thing that I remember, and maybe the most important thing, and something that I've always thought about ever since there was family meal. It was really important to you and to everybody. And I remember, even when I was on the pantry station, I was like, I'm going to make the best salad for family meal people, like the best salad you've ever had in your life. Of course, it was probably not even close, but I was 
motivated to like feed the front of house staff and feed the kitchen and for us to take a minute even though I, you know, come in two hours before my schedule shift to make sure my station was set, I was going to make like the best salad for everybody. And so that was really memorable. And I want to tell you that from that day, family meals always been really important. And one of the things that I always did and that my sous chefs always knew was absolute is every single night, whoever is running the kitchen, you personally cook dinner for the dishwasher, no matter what happens. Oh, yeah. No yeah. matter if you did 200 covers, short staff, doesn't matter. You personally cook dinner for the dishwasher. So I hijacked your whole episode here, but I wanted to tell people how important those things were and for them to think about if you're in that pantry kid position at 23, how important it is to strive. And if you're in the leadership position, how meaningful those interactions and setting that tone can be. And Family Meal, tell us, why was family meal so important to you and to that restaurant? Um, you know why? Because first off, it, it, it's about taking care of the people that work in the restaurant. Um, and if you don't, if you know, I've had a lot of people that kind of throw stuff together. And it, I, I remember one guy, and this was after 40 sardines, he like built this thing in a deep hotel pan and called it recession pie. And it was purple and it was gross. And it was like, you know what? One, that's disrespectful to everybody that has to eat it. Two, you know, we're, we're a family and, you know, we need, we're good cooks. And if we can't get, cook well for our family, then, you know, they have to go out in front of the customer and take care of the customer after, you know, in a sense being disrespected is, is the way I look at it. And it was just important that we took care of each other um, and everybody needs to start their day, whether it's lunch or dinner or service, you know, in a good mood and feeling like we're a family. You know, that was always important that 40 settings felt like a family and no matter where you are, your staff is your family. And like you said, the dishwashers, that is like the hardest job and anybody disrespects a dishwasher, um, will hear from me because you do not disrespect the dishwashers because you go back there and do that. That is one of the hardest jobs you can find and, and almost a thankless job. And so, like you said, actually, after they work all night and a busy night, you know, you have to take care of them and feed them. And unfortunately, it's get, fortunately it's getting better, but unfortunately, they're usually like the lowest paid on the totem pole whatever little bit you can do to help them and make them feel valued was always important. That was not just, oh, we do family meal. It was foundational, fundamental, to the point where you couldn't not have family meal. Like it was almost like, all right, I know you're super busy. You still got stuff to prep. We got you, but you need to come and take five minutes and like look yeah, everyone else down. in the eyes who you're going to be going into battle with tonight. And just take one breath. And, and I think that was really important. So I always, always remember that. So personally, I'd say thank you. And just everyone listening, do that. Okay? Yeah, just, do just do and it. Just do it. Whatever thing form that you I can. Always, yeah. What I used to do is when it was somebody's birthday, I'd go to the grocery store. 
and find the cake with the most colored frosting on it and bring it back. Because I think one year I bought a, one of, it was my sous chef at the time, or actually he was the chef de cuisine. I bought him a, like a Batman cake because cake was black. And everybody started out the day with like their tongue all black. And I thought that was hysterical. You have to do that. Grocery store birthday cakes are the best. That's perfect. It's like the the worst and best possible cake you could have, right? It's just. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, talk about setting the tone and having a moment of levity, which I think is so important when you're, you're about to get your head kicked in, just have a moment to smile with everybody. What a difference that makes. So love it, appreciate it personally. And just it's, it sets a tone for the industry as a whole. And I think we need to forget that. Cannot forget that because why we do what we do, who we serve, who we're in the trenches with, it truly matters what we're cooking how we're cooking it. The three pan pickups are fun memories. But here's the thing. I don't remember. (laughs) I can't even remember any of what those dishes were. I just remember the intensity of them. But I do remember the interactions with Jason Stanhope. And I do remember the interactions with you and the team, right? So it's always, it's always people. It's always people. So really, really appreciate that. All right, let's segue. It's time to have our own little levity. We always like to play a little best served on icebreaker game. We're going to do a little bracketology soup edition of everything that I read. Chicken noodle soup just jumped out at me. I kind of had this moment. I was like, yeah, I really love chicken noodle soup. I, I think I'm going to make chicken noodle soup. Totally is fundamental. Yeah, For everyone listening, s- soup. It's simple. It's like, it, it's so nurturing and, uh, and important. I also joke about it being like, if you want to be a cook, go back in the walk-in and make me some soup. It's so seems so make simple. Make a good but- soup. Yep. Absolutely. So yeah. soup, it got me thinking about soup, right? Soup ha- is in, in two broad classifications of clear soup. And you have consomme, bouillon broth, thick soups, puree, velouté, cream soups, and then kind of little iterations therein. It's almost, you know, mother sauce structured. On the broth side, on the clear side, it was pretty clear that chicken noodle obviously is going to win against anything else. But tell us why chicken noodle is just so important to you. It's just the simplicity of it, I guess. And it kind of has everything you need. I grew up eating in a lot of Jewish delis. And um, I did actually, when at the delis, I never got the noodle soup. I got kreplach, which is a meat-filled dumpling, as opposed to the matzo ball. I don't know why. I think it was my mom. She always got the kreplach. And even to this day, you know, when I lived in Kansas City for over 20 years, we would come back to Chicago and I'd have to have a bowl of kreplach soup. Um, but at home, you know, I always keep Campbell's chicken noodle soup. You know what? If you're not feeling good, a bowl of Campbell's chicken noodle soup is good. If, well, of course, in Kansas City, I couldn't get the uh, a good Jewish deli soup. You know what? It's got everything. It's got the little chunks of chicken, a little chunk of carrot, and then those little short noodles. And the broth is always simple and it's good. Um, it's absolute classic. It kind of and it's the number one selling soup in America. So I just like going down these rabbit holes and I'm such a research geek that I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's just absolutely classic chicken noodle soup. All right, let's get into a couple others. So I'm going to pose uh, within these subcategorizations of soups. I'm going to give you two soups. Okay. You're going to pick a winner and tell us ah. why that soup speaks to you. So puree soup, ah. so many puree soups, so important. If you were to take tomato or a potato pureed soup, a la baked potato soup, and you got the tomato, which direction are you are you leaning? Probably, oh, that's a hard one. 
don't know, maybe we're, tomato. We're heavy hitting here. I mean, this is pretty serious uh, journalism over here. We're getting the scoop. You know, so this is what you have to think of when you do that. It's what flavor do you want left in your mouth? You want the potato flavor left in your mouth or you want the tomato flavor left in your mouth? I'm going to go with tomato. Is there anything First better than a grilled cheese and tomato soup? Exactly. combination? On a cold winter day here in Chicago where it's 20 degrees. It's a must. All right, you have the velouté, right? <laughs> the velouté are going to be soups thickened with roux. So we got a couple yeah. uh, classics here. Now you're going to have to pick regionally. So you're going to make some friends and some enemies. You have down uh -oh. in Louisiana, the South, you got gumbo, unbelievably yeah. classic. And then out in the Southwest, you have the different green chilies. So if you had to pick between those two rue thickened soups, who's coming out on top? Uh, I think I'm going to go with the Louisiana gumbo style. What is it about gumbo? Again, more flavors. You can, more stuff you can do with it. <laughs> and you can change it for whatever mood you're in or whatever you got in the kitchen or what's going bad in the kitchen you got to get rid of. <laughs> Soup is a great vehicle for, oh, that's only Left got a couple over. days left. Absolutely. Yep, All right, cream soups. I'd say probably my favorite category of soup because they're the healthiest, clearly. And uh, They are. When you're thinking about cream soups, beer cheese or chowder? Oh, chowder. I like nice. a good chowder. Uh, it's uh, a few things better than a good chowder. What is it about chowder that, that really speaks to you? It, chowder is somewhat similar in vain with a chicken noodle soup. When you get a good classic chowder, oh my God, it's just perfect. It, it has everything you need right there in the flavor. It's a flawless, I mean, it's a flawless perfect. thing. It's perfectly yeah. constructed texture, right? You have the, the velvety silkiness from the cream and the base. You have nice little texture of chunks of things it's like it's all the things pureed soups i love them but i feel like the tomato soup or the baked potato it's almost as much about the other thing that you have with it i love the grilled cheese uh right, and right. you know butternut squash puree it's like i like it for a couple bites but i need something else in it and it definitely feels like chowder is just a oh, it's complete flawless composition big ups to everybody making chowder new england you have a thing and you love it we love it that is a perfect soup addition. People, go out and make some soup. Who is somebody that you're working with today that you'd really like to acknowledge and we can talk about a little bit? Probably Amy Morton. I worked with her in Chicago uh, almost 30 years ago. And as of about a month ago, we're back together as a team. It's actually been kind of interesting because, you know, 30 years ago, she had her first restaurant. And actually, that was my first chef position was with her. Now to come this far down the road and having made my career, and she's got three restaurants now and it's kind of fun reuniting and seeing the change in her, which I'm sure she sees change in me as well. Where was that uh, first restaurant? The first restaurant was called Mirador and it was in the old town. And so what re reconnected you? You were coming back to Chicago reconnected and the timing was right and the vibe was right? Well, Amy and I always kept in touch over the years. And, you know, when I'd come in town to visit family, every once in a while we'd, you know, meet up over a bagel or something and see where, what was she was doing, what was I was doing. And I had talked in the past about, actually, she started 
uh, working on Found, which is the restaurant, the main kitchen that I'm kind of headquartering out of about, I think it was like five years before she actually opened the restaurant. I remember I came in town and saw one of the buildings she was looking at and talked about what she wanted to do. It just seemed, you know, timing was never with us. And um, it just, timing was just there this time. So it, you know, we even talked about possible consulting projects we were going to work on together. So it was always in the cards, I think, that we were going to get back together and do something. It just timing and what that project was going to be. Tell us a little bit more about Amy. Who is she as a, as a leader, as a peer, as a confidant, the relationship that the two of you have? Yeah, well, Amy came is from a restaurant family, restaurant background. Her father um, is Arnie Morton, who had the Morton Steakhouse chains, and her brothers um, have restaurants in the city as well. Uh, you know, but really the change from Mirador to what I see today is I think a lot more comfortable in her own skin, which I think as everybody moves on in their career, that happens. Um, she knows how to really feature the guest and make sure that the experience is where it needs to be. She cares a lot about the people that work for her. And, you know, uh, found is actually we're trying to be, I know it's kind of a passe thing, but not really is um, farm to table, um, which is great because everybody in this industry knows being a farmer and just focusing on individual restaurants is a really hard business to be in. So even when I was in Kansas City, it was, you know, you try to give back to the community. And that means, you know, the farmers need the support. And so working with them and working within the seasons is always a challenge, especially in the Midwest, because seasons go so quickly. But, um, you know, that really spoke to me as well, how important it is to work with the farmers. And again, like I said, you know, the the restaurant family that you're involved with is important. And that just shows so much what I've seen with Amy in the short time we've been back together that I really appreciate. And I think our sensibilities of what we like are very similar. She's got good instincts, I think, when it comes to people, the people she wants to work with her, and they match a lot with my feelings and instincts as well. So it's, you know, I think it's going to be a great partnership between the two of us. You're talking getting comfortable in your skin is something always that takes a while to find that cadence. And uh, and clearly for Amy, coming out of the, the shadow cast by such something so iconic as Morton Steakhouse, clearly kind of finding your personal way is going to be super important within that. Glad to hear that that is really showing now. Uh, you talked about her love of the guests and like taking care of the staff. Tell us maybe a couple practical things, a la what we talked about with Family Meal, that Amy's really instilling, has instituted into the, the company DNA. Yeah, you know, and, and the feeling that, like, when anybody walks inside your four walls, in a sense, like they're coming into your own house. So whether it's a customer walking in the front door to have a dining experience or, you know, you have people, um, whatever aspect they do for you inside the restaurant as, as staff, you know, you still want them to feel that, you, and, and not it's not just to feel, but really care about. That's so hard to pull off. 
you mentioned the farm to table being somewhat passe. I, I think farm to table needs to be fundamental in the way that we run our businesses, not a marketing ploy to your point. I think right, that, it's, right. that it's ingrained versus being an aesthetic. And so I think the same thing, it's easy to say, oh, treat them like you're there in your home, but to truly deliver upon that and think about them in the way that you oh, would hard. really, really yeah. hard. You know, sometimes yeah. we're better at thinking of them as family, like drunk Uncle Larry being, <laughs> being, an, a, being an asshole to them, going back to your yeah. uh, syrup days at Pop and Fresh Pies. That seems like an easier thing. It, that seems to happen a lot more in the industry of us treating, treating our guests like drunk Uncle Larry, which is not hospitality. I like that, that that's not just uh, lip service, that clearly it's something yeah, that you guys and you are know, trying to push. It's really a balance because, you know, to bring up like pop and fresh pies or some of those bigger, more, what's the word, you know, the big restaurant companies, it's more of a business. And when it comes to the bottom line, yes, it's all a business, but you know, how do you keep it where your employees know that you do care about them yet you still have to run your business professionally? That's always a weird balance. And it's actually something that was important to me at 40 Sardines is there's got to be, you know, your human resources and payroll and, and all the general manager and how you treat people, all that kind of has to be professional. But still, how do you make it where every day when somebody comes to work, you still are comfortable enough or having fun and feel like it's your family? Um, that's a weird dynamic. And I think that's an important one. I believe in it. And I think right now, um, I, I sense that in everything that I've seen in the last few weeks with Amy and what she's developed. Yeah, giving people that North Star, the, the why behind it all is so, so important. And then you actually have to get in the dirt, do it every single day. You need both, yeah. right? You need to be grounded and you need to have something to aspire to. That dynamic clearly at play. Love hearing that. My favorite part of the show, this is what the show is all about. One of your nominees for Unsung Hospitality Heroes, the people that need to be recognized because people at every level of the industry, they fucking matter. And the more time we spend talking about them and cultivating them better off this industry could be. So talk to us about who that is for you that you'd like to acknowledge. I wanted to acknowledge uh, Andrew Longgrass. Um, he was also a 40 starting employee. And he kind of came with me after the restaurant closed and I went back to the American and stuff. You know, he, I think like 19 when he started with me, was just a hardworking guy and always you know what I felt with him I always felt he wanted to be better than me so not to say that I'm that great but I never really had to worry about what he was going to produce because in a sense it was like I can do that he in his mind or what I saw from him was I can do that better I can do that better I think he still does that today think about it as trust and confidence when you have trust and confidence in somebody that they're going to do the right things they may not always have the tech technique they may not always yeah. understand the ingredient all those things but you have trust that they will you have trust and confidence that they're going to be able to navigate that and and i think that goes both ways which is really important they also uh have to have trust and confidence in you because sometimes we kind of you know, fake it till we make it. Or sometimes we have a lot of bravado and ego, not me, but lots of other people. No, definitely me. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I think it's a really well, important we thing, right? We do. You need to be, you need to have a little bit of uh, chutzpah 
to be in a kitchen. So I think it's important. The trust and confidence needing to go both ways to be able to have somebody trust you as a leader enough to be vulnerable and say, hey, I'm going to do this better. I need you to educate me, teach me, push me, whatever that might be. And so I kind of hear that when you're talking about somebody like Andrew, is that there clearly is that trust and confidence going both ways and, uh, and it built up quite a rapport. How long did you end up working with him over the years? Wow. Uh, how many years total? <laughs> I guess maybe over five years. And actually when, um, so again, I think you and I talked about this before we're talking about how life is sort of a big circle. He, um, so my last, like my first job in Kansas City was at the American restaurant. My last job in Kansas City was the American restaurant because what happened is they decided not to do a la carte after like almost 42 or 43 years, but are doing, uh, more of an event space, but with the same creativity and same level of quality that they've always done. And uh, I was helping them sort of transition from a la carte to that kind of an event place. And when I decided I was moving to Chicago, basically I called Andy and I said, you want this job? You know, and that also goes uh, another conversation, which is probably a whole different show is the balance of you know, working in this industry and having a life. And Andy's married not too long, has has a child now, little girl, beautiful girl. And he's like, well, how do I balance it? You know, how do I not do a la carte and still be there for my kid when she does, whether, you know, she becomes a gymnast or dancer or whatever. And it's hard. And, you know, really, uh, it's important to decide what, success means to you personally. You can get caught on a lot of the awards and the Michelin stars and all of that. But, you know, being a great chef in your city and also being there for your family, a great definition of success. You know, we hear and read a lot of now about how not to overwork as a chef, which is, I also think is in our DNA. But it is important how to figure out how to be a good parent as well as it is to succeed in your career, which is, I think, a dynamic a lot of people fight in this industry. Refreshing to hear you touching on that, because to that point it is, we we go and go and go until we burn out often versus finding our way. You don't hear a lot of about 65-year-old line cooks retiring in the kitchen, because it doesn't, doesn't yeah. really happen, right? It's not oh, built well, for that. Physically, you challenge. can't do that. <laughs> It's tough. It's It's tough. And so uh, here's what I appreciate about what you're saying is that you mentored somebody like, like Andrew in the kitchen for five years, which is like multiple lifetimes in the kitchen, that duration when, when today the average lifespan of a restaurant employee is 56 days. The fact that you had, it's sad. The fact that you had somebody for five years really, really speaks to that. What I like even more is the fact that you were not just mentoring in the kitchen, but understanding the value of mentoring outside the kitchen. And for you, I know how, how important it was for you being a mother of two and finding a way to balance insane work ethic and determination and drive with, with being a mother. So paying that thinking forward to somebody like Andrew, I think is really important. We need more of that. People listening on both sides of the equation, you need more of that, more of finding a way to support each other in and out of the fire is going to 
allow you the opportunity to, to really flourish as a human, which is only going to make you a better cook, a better chef, better bartender, better server. So greatly appreciate that, which leads right into the theme we've been basically talking about throughout all of this. And another thing that's easy to have be lip service, but it really means a lot to you clearly. You say, treat everyone the way you want to be treated yourself. It's one of those, obviously that goes without saying, yet how often do we not deliver on that? Why is that something important to you? Um, well, I when I was uh, first starting out as a line cook, there were a lot more of the screaming chefs, the chefs throwing knives or pans at their cooks and kind of belittling as a way of motivation, which I never got. Um, you know, I never excelled in that. And if I got treated poorly by being yelled at or, you know, talked down to, or especially in front of the other staff, it, I tended to shut down rather than go, you know, oh, I can do better. This, I'm not going to have the chef yell at me like that anymore. That That's not a motivational factor and it never was for me. So I didn't like to be treated that way. So why would I turn around and start treating other people that way? I kind of feel like it was more of a, you know, it's like the hazing and fraternities and stuff and stuff. It was kind of like, well, it was done to me and this is the way it should be. So when you got in the position to have some sort of authority, you turn around and you did it to the next person. That just didn't make sense to me because, again, I want people that want to be in my kitchen. I want people that are having fun. I mean, obviously, you have to do your work. You have to put your head down and be serious while you're working. But there's got to be time to enjoy what you're doing while you're there. We work way too many hours and we're with each other way too long to have that kind of juju around the kitchen. It's just negative energy. and It just never worked for me. So, you know, when, you know, the other hard part is, is it's a very stressful environment, which I'm not telling anybody, they don't know who are in the industry. You get to the point, the stress is there and it's like, you have no choice and you're like, give me that food right now. I need it now. But there's no reason to call people an idiot or call them, a, you know, I don't know. I, some of the stuff that people used to do, it just doesn't make sense. So I don't try not to do it. And when I do feel like I've been through a very stressful service, usually I apologize to my entire line. If I snapped at them during service, I always say I bark. I don't bite. Believe you because I've seen it. Oh, I just want to say again, I personally am truly grateful for the impact that you had. And I know that many, many more have had that same impact. I am so happy that we got to reconnect 14 years later and wow. be able to have this conversation because it really matters. The listening, it really matters. The relationships that we have within the industry, acknowledging the humans in hospitality that actually make it all possible Thank you for lending your voice to this conversation. Thank you for bringing value to this audience, to the industry. I really appreciate you being on the show. Oh, I appreciate you asking me. This was great. And it was a lot of fun reconnecting. I'd like to find out where everybody kind of moves on to. So thank you so much. Cheers. And we're back, everybody, talking with Andrew Longris who is one of Debbie Gold's unsung hospitality heroes. What was it like growing up in Liberty, Missouri? Was it the culinary hotbed? No, absolutely not. The, uh, it, I mean, it's a small town. It's not small anymore. It's really expanded pretty big. And 
it is one of those things that I grew up in a pretty much on a farm. So there, my grandparents and my parents weren't really huge cooks onto it. They were really good cooks, but they were more like a mom cook and a grandma cook. They didn't really uh, expand outside of their realm too much or their repertoire too much. So, um, I mean, that's what I, I knew I always wanted to do this. So that's kind of what drove me into this. And I wanted to leave town. I wanted to see the world. And this is a way that I could see it. So then it was clear at an early age. What was your first job in the industry? What, what got worked, you into the profession? I worked at a, uh, at a donut shop when I was 14. When I could get a job, I, I got a job at a donut shop selling and frying donuts. I'd go in at like two in the morning on the weekends and then I'd uh, fry donuts and then I'd sell till I would help sell all the donuts and everything until about two. So that was, that was a fun job. That was uh, only Saturday, Sunday. And then, uh, yeah, I did that till I went, till I went all the way through high school. And then, so for four years I worked there and then there was, I had another job as at another place, little mom and pop restaurant that did very well for themselves. And uh, I was washing dishes and then I moved up to the line, did a whole bunch of uh, prep work, learned from the, uh, the bakers how to do their pies. They did everything from scratch. So it was, it was a good, it was a good restaurant. Did you learn that hard work uh, growing up on the farm? Because 2 a.m. at 14. I don't know any fucking 14-year-olds that are getting up at 2 a.m. to go fried donuts. I mean, it's one of those things of like, yeah, I mean, you, you just kind of got to do it. It's not a, it was a, a want. It wasn't a need. It was, I want to do this. So I want to see what this is about. Uh, my parents are big, big sticklers of, you know, they're asking, what do you want to do? What do you want to do when you get, get uh older you know let's if you want to do this let's dabble with it now to see if you like it because you don't want to waste all your money and your time putting it into this if you don't like it so that was my parents were like go get a job I mean I grew up on a farm I still had a job on the farm doing stuff but it wasn't a um, you know like I didn't get paid for it so they wanted to see if you want to do it go see it go try it and they were very supportive of it they are still very supportive of me on that but yeah, 14. It was fun. It was a big challenge. It was a big fun thing. The people, the culture was really cool. And that's what was kind of like intoxicating. It kind of really just uh, it, the push, the demand, the stress. It, it was a big fueling driver. At 19, 40 sardines, award-winning, high-end, much different than frying donuts. And you get into, I know you were on that fish station. Debbie and I talked about that fish station being fucking epic. <laughs> Take us back to that moment as a really young, impressionable, getting into the industry, the fire, the heat, the intensity, the level of talents that was there. Talk about that because everyone listening, everyone who is a 19-year-old looking to get into this industry, I want to paint a picture for them, realistic and aspirational. So take us back to that time early on at 40 Sardines. So I kind of felt like a fish out of water at the very beginning due to the fact that I didn't feel like I could... Uh, hang with the, the talent that was there and learn uh, and I could, you know, teach anything of that. And I was just one of those things of, um, I knew that I was young and I knew the only way that I was going to be successful was hard work and dedication. And um, I was also a sous chef for her there as a junior sous. And I, you know, you're trying to manage people when the sous chef and the chef de cuisine go home. 
and you're trying to manage people that are a lot older than you, that are a lot more experienced than you. And I knew the only way that I was going to be successful was I was going to be uh, more organized, faster, cleaner, more disciplined, and more on point than anybody in the kitchen. And, you know, hard work and dedication, that's really what I drove myself to. I was there as long as I possibly could be. I was there earliest I could be. And just trying to get everything, making sure that the, when the sous chef walked in in the morning, there were no problems. So, I mean, it is grueling. It is, but that's what drove me was the satisfaction of when they would walk in in the morning and they'd be like, nice job, good. And that would be set the standard for everybody else. So that just kind of helped drive that culture of let's do this better. Let's get this one a little bit cleaner. Let's make sure everything's tighter. There's a clear theme here. You're going to outgrind, out hustle, 14 year old up at 2 a.m., working your ass off. I think that dedication, you're on the farm, clearly is a bedrock of your approach and obviously paid off because yeah. Debbie had amazing things to say about you. And you guys work together at multiple locations, which is another big indicator, you know, yeah. that, uh, that she had that depth of belief in you. So take us to Debbie specifically. Give us some isms. Give us some of the things that you've taken with you as a chef years and years and years later now, 15 years later, thinking about who you are as a chef and maybe some of the things that you've taken from Debbie. The biggest thing I can take from Debbie is culture. For me, uh, I didn't really understand that when I started working for her because, you know, you see, it's very, it's very romanticized, our industry. And it's all, you know, oh, look at all this fun and flashy stuff. But they don't really tell you it's, it's, it's not easy work. It's, it's a lot of heartache. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that you do for your job. And you're not, you know, entirely thanked for it or commended for your achievements as a young person or as a Sioux or something like that. And culture is the key to everything. So being nice to the you know, taking the extra step to go out of your way for your employees when they need, when they need help. And when just as an active gesture, because we're all humans, we're all here to, to be on the team, to better ourselves, and to, you know, give better service and better uh, culture and better lives for everybody else. That's our whole thing. So that was a huge thing. So staff meal played a big thing. You know, we're, we're, we eat. And most of the time uh, we eat not as well as the guests do. You know, we, we're not eating fillets and ribeyes and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, we can make better food for ourselves by, and it kind of pushes us to make better foods and kind of think outside the box. And now we can give that to our staff, which is now going to um, make sure that everything is, uh, you know, more appreciated, a little bit better. And then that culture is kind of very, in, in, uh, kind of flows throughout itself. So that was the hugest thing I, I always knew. So she was very, there, I mean, there's times when you get, there was, you got to be brash, but it's, it is what it is. And it was always act of kindness, make sure everything's good. Let's, uh, let's have a good meal together. Let's sit together. Let's talk. Let's have communications. Let's know about what we're doing outside of the kitchen as well as inside the kitchen, because that's equally as important as your, your work life, but also the balance of your work life. Moments of like human connection were really important. Just taking a second to slow down before you get your head kicked in 
and just look each other in the eyes, have a little bit of connection because you're going into battle together. Yeah. So you better be ready. So I always appreciate that. Tell us what you're working on currently. And then I'm very interested how you might be applying culture. Give us a little snippet. We want to tease people just a little bit. So when we get into your episode, I really want to talk about culture a lot as far as what you're doing in your current role. So I'm uh, the executive chef of the American Restaurant again. So this will be my second tour on this one. We have closed down for full service. Now we're only doing private dining. And um, so that is a very big plus. And I have a smaller group to execute the parties that we do. We do a bunch of corporate events, weddings, uh, different functions, galas, all everything we pretty much did, offsite, stuff like that. So I got a, a smaller group of uh, individuals that I work with than a, let's say, a, a bigger restaurant or an independent restaurant with all that flow through. Um, but uh, culture, you know, for us here, very important that if we can get days off, we go do stuff. We, we have fun. We, we want to make sure that we'll go out for drinks or we'll go out for if we have a day off, we'll go go-karts or something of that aspect to have fun and to drive that. And then it kind of just propagates itself of like issues that come up that really, that culture really helps me out for that because it's one of those things like you can have a heart to heart with somebody and be like, come on, man, this, you know, that wasn't right. Like, you know, that's not a right thing to do. And you know, they have that connection with you. So it's easier to manage on that, I find. So that's what I do. Get outside the kitchen. We're on the fourth floor of a restaurant, to, or a, I'm sorry, in a complex. We don't really see a lot of sun, so that's key to us too. It's like, all right, we're going, let's go for a walk, or let's go outside and eat staff meal on the street level, or something to kind of get out of the kitchen, because there's no, no windows in the kitchen. There isn't the dining room, but one of those things, if we're busy, we can't do. It's such an interesting line to walk when you want to really connect with your team and have that openness and that rapport as well as the balance of who is the leader and when it's time to work, it's time to work. And you hear about like, well, you don't fraternize with like line level people and all these different dynamics at play. You just have to find what's right for you and your team and find yeah. that sweet spot where there's the respect, the understanding, and when it's time to work, they also know it's time to work, right? And it seems Absolutely. like that balance is really, really important to you. That is because there's, there's lines that I have for myself. So like when they say like, don't fraternize, like, We'll go out. I have a rule for myself. It's only a one drink rule. So like if we're going out for a beer, I'm only getting one beer. You guys can get as many as they want or a drink or whatever. I'm only going to get one um, because I mean, I've been in instances where, um, you know, you see your, your boss or your chef that's just hammered drunk and then kind of discredit them sometimes because they'll say something or they'll do something and you're just like, come on, man, or they'll do something in public. So that's for myself. I have a one one drink rule and then I leave. I used to have a rule that was like, I never drink with it, but I now have come around and been like, no, this is a big, a big thing and, you know, and have some fun with them. That self-awareness yeah. and understanding of the team, yourself, the dynamic, being just sensitive to it. Andrew, I am grateful to have you on the show now. Uh, we talked about it before we started recording. You and I missed each other at 40 Sardines by about a month. Yeah. Uh, how important that <laughs> restaurant was to both of us was really, really clear in, in how it set a trajectory for us throughout. So I'm glad that we got to talk about Debbie and 40 Sardines. And I'm really excited to talk about you, your why, your who, who, because I think it's really important to you and a bedrock of what you're doing at The American. So thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.